Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Our faith is, is in a person, and he's alive. It's not just an abstract truth and reality. And he will walk with you through whatever it is you're going through, and he makes a difference. And I'm thankful to God for it. This morning, we're in Acts 24. We are in the section of Acts that I am calling uh, my wife asked me on Sunday night. What are you going to do with that? big guy. And every time I answer, I have no idea, but I'll figure it out by next week. So hopefully I've figured it out. Acts 24, we're going to cover all 27 verses, so hang on tight and we're going to move. Last week, Paul was scurried away from Jerusalem, as you recall, to Caesarea under the cover of darkness with a protective military detail, along with a letter from Lysias the Tribune to the governor Felix explaining why he's sending Paul. Like Lysias, we see that, that Felix apparently really wants nothing to do with the Paul issue. If he could just get, get it rid of him and send him to another province, he'd be happy with that, but that doesn't work out. So we, we trail off next week. We're waiting for Paul's accusers to get to Caesarea so Felix can have a hearing. And today we're going to read about Paul's hearing before Governor Felix. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord? We'll start with verses 1 through 9. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had Been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Now, before I pray... Some of you, depending on the version of the Bible you're holding your hands, might say what happened to verse 7 and part of verse 8. There were uh, many manuscripts of the Bible, uh, and the earliest manuscripts don't have verse 7 in the first half of verse 8. They appear about four centuries in, and so it appears the scribe is trying to explain some extra things uh, about what's going on. Uh, But we think the original text of Scripture goes from verse 6 to verse 8, which is why I read that, all right? Let's pray. God, we ask in Jesus' name that you would continue the work that you have started in this service this morning. God, that you would continue to allow gospel truth to take hold of your people. That you would allow those in this room who do not yet know Christ, who who don't know the joy of communing with Jesus, that, Lord Jesus, you would break in and uh, take charge. 
for the glory of God and the good of the people in this room and the people that they will impact for the rest of their lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to show you three things from the text this morning. The first is this, enemies of the gospel, and I'll read slowly for those of you who really like to take notes. You do know you can use your smartphone at any time. It's like the 2023 amen, right? You get out your smartphone and take a picture, that's fine too. But enemies of the gospel will falsely accuse Christians, representing them as toxic, as a toxic and misguided threat to society. Enemies of the gospel will falsely accuse Christians, representing them as a toxic and misguided threat to society. Most of the people in this room have been born and raised in the United States, which means that for most of us who are, say, 35 and older, maybe, we, we can remember a time when being a Christian in our country was for the most part seen as a good thing in our society. I remember growing up getting the yellow pages. Does anybody remember the yellow pages? Google has made the yellow pages irrelevant. Siri has made the yellow pages irrelevant. But you used to, children uh, in the room, used to get this thing. It was like a catalog of pages that happened to be yellow telling you about the businesses in your, your locality. And many of the businesses, I remember when I was particularly young, would, would put the ichthus, the symbol of Christianity, the little fish in the corner of their business to, to let you know, hey, we're a Christian. We love Jesus. And, and the assumption was by putting it there, people would be more likely to go to your business because you're a believer. Well, in our society, that, that ship is sailing, right? More and more people aren't seeing that as a good thing. I, I remember when when I was in school, they used to call winter break Christmas break. They used to call, East, they used to call spring break Easter break. And I remember when they officially changed the names. My, my father, he's not right about everything, um, but I remember him saying to me when they made that official change in Roanoke County, I remember him saying to me, son, this is not inconsequential. The change in the name means something. It means something in our society. Just watch. And I'm here to tell you my dad was right. Changes in names have given way to changes in laws, in politics, and in public perception. In 2008, we had the first presidential election in modern U.S. history in which a majority of those voting said they were less likely to vote for a candidate who was an evangelical Christian. A majority of voters, beginning in 2008, said, if you're an evangelical Christian, I won't vote for you for national office. Y'all here this morning? The world in which we live has changed. The, the clarity that Christians bring to society by standing upon and standing for fixed truth is largely no longer valued in our country. The compassionate care that Christians bring to society is being marginalized and driven to the sidelines through governments and now even businesses that are calling modeling the truth in love hate. As those who stand for truth, we've been labeled narrow-minded, zealots, we've been labeled bigots who just need to get with the times already. 
But it's much more important, church, eternally more important that we stay with the gospel than that we get with the times. And I want you to be encouraged this morning to know that this sort of hostility that, that comes toward those who follow Jesus, it actually isn't new. It might feel new to those who grew up in the United States in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, or 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, but, but this is not a new phenomenon. It might feel new to us. It might feel disorienting to us, but it is actually quite normal, and we see it in the life of Paul. Paul faces a, a similar, although much more intense and menacing scenario in verses 1 through 9, as the high priest... And some elders bring a big shot attorney named Tertullus to make their case. Part of the case is unstated, right? It, it resides in the realm of political pressure. The people who showed up to make the case. Who came? The high priest and some hand-picked elders from Jerusalem. And this is the governor of Judea. And you don't want to have an unhappy high priest. And the high priest shows up and says, we want to get done with this guy. He doesn't even have to speak for his case to be made because the governor wants to keep the peace in his province. That's his job. And then the attorney speaks. When, when Tertullus makes his case, he begins to accuse or present the charges against Paul in verse 2. Yet before he makes any formal charges, what does he begin with? The customary flattery, the, the warm fuzzies about Governor Felix, which, by the way, were most likely a, a gross exaggeration because Felix's time as governor, we've learned by, from other history sources, was marked by massive social unrest and incompetence. Nevertheless, they say, Felix, you're amazing. We love you. We thank you. We're so thankful for you. And then after the flattery, he asked for the governor's kindness in verse 4. The word means reasonableness or fairness. Just be reasonable, governor, in hearing our case. And then he proceeds to bring two formal charges, which also, as we know, happen to be phony charges in 5 and 6. If the charges had been true, Paul would be guilty, uh, would be punishable by up to death. These, these could have incurred the death penalty. And the first charge is in verse 5. Tertullus claims that Paul is guilty of stirring up riots among Jews, not just in Jerusalem, but throughout the known world. He calls Paul a plague. Right, Not just he's having a bad day or you might want to stay away from Paul. Paul is a plague. He doesn't just start riots. The implication is he's a menace to society that could spread like a disease. He's like an infectious disease that infects everything that he's around. Then at the end of verse 5, he's labeled as being from the sect of the Nazarenes. Do, do you follow what he's saying? This guy is a fringe, cultish plague in our society. Get rid of him. He, he's arguing that Paul is from such a theological fringe group that, that their destructiveness will not stop unless the government makes an example of Paul. Interestingly, the, the high priests and the elders are putting themselves on the side of Rome here, making themselves out to be a, a sane and a safe and, and a tame religion that's no threat to, to Rome, while Paul is portrayed as leading a bunch of nutcases who say that they follow Jesus of Nazareth. Re recall that Jesus, too, had been shamed for coming from Nazareth. Do you remember when Nathaniel is called by Philip 
to come and meet Jesus. You remember what Nathaniel says for the first time? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The sect of the Nazarenes. It would be like today if somebody said that the cult of the rednecks, the cult of the hillbillies, those backwater, backwood, know-nothing, good-for-nothing crazies, they don't know what they're doing. That's what they're saying. Stay away from that guy. The longer you let this guy fester, you're going to threaten to bring Rome down. I want to pause for a moment and be sure that we make the connection between the text and today. How can we make sense of people who claim Christ but attack biblically faithful Christians as fringe and weird and crazy and wacky fundamentalists who are a threat to society? How do we make sense of that? They're playing with the same playbook that we see in Acts. The world is fine with Jesus as long as he's the a tame Jesus, not the lion of the tribe of Judah who overthrows tables and enters hearts and changes people and gives them a gospel perspective that is countercultural very often. But you see, church, I want to be sure we understand this this morning. A faith that never ruffles any feathers or confronts the prevailing narratives in our society is as phony as the charges they bring against real followers of Jesus. A faith that says saints can celebrate sin and will never have to courageously swim upstream against the current of society, no matter how much scripture they think they're using, no matter how much they try to invoke the name of Jesus, that faith is utterly worthless and false. Real Christians living in the real world will face real opposition. In verse 6, Tertullus alleges that Paul defiled the temple. He moves to his second charge. This is a Serious charge because Rome's philosophy at the time was to let local religious leaders, the the dominant local religion, as long as they didn't mess with Rome, to kind of mind their business. And it was a big deal if somebody came in and, and messed up the local religious affair. To quote Barney Fife, Rome would come and nip it in the bud. Of course, Paul had had not defiled the temple. We know this, right? Tertullus also says they had seized Paul. Was this true? The, the people with him hadn't seized Paul. Now, the, the Jews from Asia had tried to beat Paul up. And the Romans had to rescue him, so his, his facts are more than just a little bit off. In the early manuscripts we have of Acts, verse 7 and, and the first half of verse 8, as I mentioned earlier, they're not there. But then in verse 8, Tertullus turns the case over to the governor inviting him to cross-examine Paul. And in verse 9, the high priest and the elders, right, the keepers of the law, they break the ninth commandment, do they not? They bear false witness against Paul as they themselves say that the charges they know to be false are true. Paul did not trust in Jesus, church, for an easy life. He trusted in Jesus because he is life. And that's a wonderful thing. Because the witness of Acts is that serving Jesus in this world can come with false accusations and misrepresentations of who we are, what we do, what we're striving to accomplish as we follow our King. And the question of our day for us in this moment, I think, is this. Do we cave to be accepted or do we defend ourselves and the truth? What are we going to do? And we live in a world 
just watch the news, read, read, read whatever you can find on Google. We live in a world that wants Christians to cave. Settle for a tame, nice Jesus. Settle for a Jesus who doesn't force us to reckon with ourselves and our sin and to swim upstream against the prevailing narrative of the day. What are we going to do? Are we just going to throw in the towel and say, you know what? I don't want to be a backwater, hillbilly, sect of the Nazarene kind of guy. I'd, I'd prefer to be accepted in the world. I'd prefer people to say nice things about me. I'd prefer to get the promotions that come to those who check all the boxes that the world says I have to check to be embraced in my, in my culture, in my company. Well, let's, let's see what Paul does. Verse 10, and we'll go down through verse 21. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But I confess, but this I confess to you. That according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul gives his defense. And what we learn from Paul in this moment is we can deny the false charges that come against us. Well, you just don't love people because you're standing for truth. Wrong. That's not true. We love people deeply. We can confess our allegiance to Jesus and we can point out the deficiencies in the arguments of those who accuse us. Truth is on the side of the Christian every time. <laughs> we can point out the deficiencies in the arguments of those who accuse us. Felix shows his authority with a nod of his head toward Paul. Like he's trying to show he's the boss, right? granting him permission to speak. But his, his attempt at intimidation of Paul didn't trip Paul up one little bit. There wasn't much positive to say about Felix. So in verse 10, Paul, as Tony Morita writes, simply acknowledges his connection with Israel and his familiarity with the religious events in Judea. And then in verses 11 through 13, he gets straight to the point. He denies the charges against him. He, he begins by pointing out that this matter is not even 12 days old. Why would he say that? Why would he say this is just 12 days old? Here's his point. If you really want to know the truth, go back to Jerusalem and ask some eyewitnesses who can tell you what really happened. They can corroborate the facts. 
And in verse 12, he's, he tells the truth. He wasn't arguing or stirring anyone up in the temple or the synagogues. Their charges are baseless, and he is innocent. And then after he establishes his innocence in verse 13, he says that his accusers can't prove their accusations. What are we doing here? Church, when we are falsely accused for following Jesus, we need to remain committed to the truth and let Jesus sort it out. And the bottom line is this. In this lifetime, the outcome may not be just. In this lifetime, it may not be just. But you can rest assured, in the life to come, Jesus will sort it out and justice will be served. Wait, I can't, I can't read this text without thinking about Jack Phillips, who owns the Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado. Is everybody familiar with that story? Remember that story? In 2012, he was charged with illegal discrimination for refusing to, to design a cake for the celebration of a relationship that violates and is contrary to God's design. He had served all kinds of cake to all kinds of people with respect, without respect to any aspect of who they are. But when he was asked to celebrate a marriage that wasn't a marriage, he couldn't do it. Because the Bible tells us that everything we do as believers is for the glory of God. You're not worshiping just when you come to worship. You're worshiping when you drive your car on the road. Hello. That's convicting for me. All of life is to be done to the glory of God. The government doesn't dictate to you when you worship and when you don't. All of life for a Christian is worship, even on the job, which has massive implications for legalities in our country and what freedom of religion is. So no government can take a, tell a cake baker what he has to celebrate in his baking of a cake. Because the First Amendment and, well, because the Bible. We glorify God no matter what. Well, I don't know if you remember how this works out, but it goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And in 2018, the Supreme Court decided in favor of Jack Phillips and Masterpiece Cake Shop. But it did so on a technicality. It didn't do so on this resounding uh, affirmation of religious liberty. It simply said that the Colorado Commission didn't treat religion uh, neutrally, but, but with hostility and so they left open the door that future cases may not be decided in his favor. Well, flash forward to today, and he's been asked to make a cake to celebrate a transition, which he refused. And he is once more going through the legalities that are involved, likely to be presented to the Supreme Court once again. This all-encompassing approach to living life for God's glory is radical, church. We must be ready to live for Jesus anywhere we go and to speak the truth to any authority we face because we ultimately follow the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And whether we're vindicated in this life or not, He will vindicate us in the life to come. In verse 14... Paul has defended himself in 12, 13, 11, 12, and 13. But in verse 14, he surprises us, right? <laughs> he says, I got a confession to make. He's on trial. He's like, you know what? I'm innocent, but I do have a confession. And here's, here's his confession in what I call the DJPV. 
My paraphrase. That's the Daniel James Palmer version. here's, Here's what he says. What they think is a fringe, marginalized, backwater sect. Guess what? It is the way to know and worship the God they claim to serve. The God of our Jewish fathers. Paul's not stirring up riots. He's worshiping God. I'm on trial for worshiping God is what Paul says. You want to know why I'm here? Because I'm a worshiper of the one true God. I confess to you that I'm on trial for being the only one in the room who's worshiping the God of the universe. Maybe y'all should listen to me. And then notice how he worships. He worships by believing We worship God by what we believe. He worships God by believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets. Did you know that we worship God not only by what we do and what we say and what we sing and what we pray, but fundamentally, at the core, worship springs from belief, right belief precedes right behavior. Right belief is the foundation of right worship. Paul's understanding of Jesus as the way in fulfillment of the messianic expectations of the Old Testament leads him to worship in truth. Right belief is a part of right worship. When we sideline believing to get around to what really matters... We've made a fundamental misstep at the beginning of worship. There is no worship without right belief in Jesus revealed as the Messiah of the Old Testament. What they are calling a sect is actually, verse 14, the way. Not a way. Not one of many ways to get to God. He is the way. Paul is on trial, and yet there is no compromise in Paul. There's no hedging. There's no suggesting that both parties might have a little bit to offer. You know, they're a little bit right, and I'm a little bit right, and there's a little bit of in-between. No, I'm right. They're wrong. I am of the way. They're calling me a sect. They've got it totally wrong. He's worshiping God according to the way laid out in the Old Testament. In other words, as Peterson writes, by claiming to be the way... Paul was insisting that Christians are the true Israel. It is Christians who experience the promised blessings of the Messianic era. How? Through faith in Jesus, they alone are the people of God. Those who have saving faith in the Son of God promised in the Old Testament. After confessing that he's right, verse 14, that's, a, that's quite a confession to, to make, right? Here's what I want to tell you in verses 11 through 13. They're wrong. But I do have a confession to make. Verse 14, I'm right. All right, way to go, Paul. After confessing that he's right in verse 14, Paul argues in verse 15 that his hope is not in stirring up revolts, but in God who will raise the dead. I don't have any business stirring up revolts or giving Rome a hard time. I just believe Jesus raised the dead. And clearly he does because... He's defending himself boldly in a place where he might end up dead. This means that Paul's hope is not found in making mayhem for Rome, but in a future resurrection. Rome has no reason to fear Paul. It also means his accountability is to God, who's going to raise the just 
to everlasting life and the unjust to everlasting death where they will be consigned to the lake of fire where the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Paul's accountability to God supremely leads him, as we read in verse 16, do you see it? To take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. This is the only place in the New Testament where we find this Greek word for taking pains. Other Greek writers used it to refer to training the body for various skills and athletic competition. My, my son Samuel has been trying to improve his time in the 1600 meters and in the 800 meters. And he would tell you that improvement takes pain. Takes striving. At his last track meet, we had a conversation about that moment that happens in every race where the lactic acid settle in, settles in and you've got to move from anaerobic to aerobic activity and you have a decision to make. Are you going to succumb to the pain or are you going to beat the pain? He, he, he embraced the pain last week and got a PR. I'm excited for him. Good job, buddy. It takes striving. Paul says... That his worship of the God who raises the dead leads him to strive to have a clean conscience before God and man. So even as he's denying the false charges from enemies of the gospel, he's still striving to be clean inwardly before God as much as depends upon him and before his fellow man. So he's refuting them, but he's not hating them. Does that make sense? I, I disagree with you. You're wrong. <laughs> You're eternally wrong, but I would be misguided to tell you anything other than the truth. And so I'm going to tell you the truth because I I love you. And ultimately because I love God and I'm accountable to God. This is Paul's posture. He strives to love God and even his unneighborly neighbors. I want you to remember that during the next election season. When the memes start falling and there's that temptation to be a keyboard warrior. Right? Just remember, we want to have, we want to take pains in our worship of God to have a clean conscience before God and our fellow man. Such that maybe by some way God would use that witness to bring them to God. Paul explains that he's not trying to destroy people because his, his relationship with God is genuine. And as we see in verse 17 and 18, his, his faith is not a cover for starting riots or desecrating the temple. He had been away from Jerusalem for several years and he came back to bring a relief offering to impoverished Jewish Christians that he calls his nation. And he comes to present offerings or make sacrifices in the temple. He was found in the temple not in a state of rioting, but in a state of ritual purification. There's no crowd, there was no trouble in sight. Those are the facts. Paul has denied the charges against him. He stood up for his faith in Jesus. Jesus isn't a fringe sect. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And then at the end of verse 18, we read, I love it. But, but, but some Jews from Asia. Is there a verb in that phrase? There's not. So Paul is defending himself. You can feel all the emotion and the energy. I didn't do it. I'm following the way. God's going to raise. 
the dead, there's going to be resurrection of the just and the unjust. We're going to face judgment for what we do. Therefore, I'm, I am pleading with you with a clean conscience. And then he gets to verse 18 and he goes, but some Jews from Asia, some Jews from Asia, what? And, and there's really two options here, right? Because he starts with the word of contrast, but... So Paul is either saying, he's gotten so worked up. Has anybody ever done this in a conversation? Like you're just rolling and then a point flies into your head from somewhere else. He's like, that's what's going on in Paul's mind. It's almost like you can read his mind. He's like, I've made my point. Well then, well, how, are, how did we get here? But some Jews from Asia, you want to know if I defiled the temple and created a riot? No, but some Jews from Asia falsely, falsely accused me of it. That might be one rendering of what he's saying. Or... You, you're talking about me being a rioter. I wasn't rioting in the temple, but some Jews from Asia, you want to know why I'm still battered and bruised? Some Jews from Asia, they're the ones that did it. So, so which is it? Are they, is he saying, well, some Jews from Asia accused me, or some Jews from Asia were actually the ones who were rioting? We, we don't know. I, I think it was more like this. Paul's essentially saying, he gets to the end of his statement that he didn't do anything wrong. Look, I didn't do anything wrong. And I've made my argument, and then, boom, it hits them. But some Jews from Asia, whoo boy, if you knew what they did. And then, boom, in verse 19, Paul's like, where are they? Anyway, the, the people who said they saw me writing, where are they? Where are the people who started this whole mess? Shouldn't they be here? Not the high priest, not these elders, not this highfalutin lawyer. Bring in the people who brought the charges and ask them about it. And then I love what he does in verse 20. It's like the knife has gone in and now he's going to twist it a little bit. He really puts his accusers in a pickle in verse 20. Because they had not witnessed what initially happened at the temple, but they had examined him before their own council at the tribune's request. And so Paul is basically going to say, look, why don't you tell the governor how our first little trial went? Didn't you already have an opportunity to try me on home turf and you guys devolved into a riot that you couldn't solve your own selves? Why? Because I told you that I'm here on account of the resurrection from the dead. That's my wrongdoing, he says in verse 20. What, am I, what is my charge? What have I really done that's wrong? I have affirmed that God raises the dead and that there will be a judgment day when our king returns. Listen, church, if you serve a risen king... You can go toe-to-toe with anybody. What are they going to do? Take your life? No. (laughs) Because you have life everlasting in Christ. If King Jesus is risen, and he is, nothing's going to stop you and nothing's going to stop Paul. It all hinges on the resurrection. Our king is risen, which means he's right. Our king is risen, which means he is returning. So we follow him no matter the cost, defending ourselves when we're falsely accused, pointing out the deficiencies and deception and the arguments of our opponents, confessing our allegiance to the risen Jesus, the way to God for all who repent and believe in Jesus. Which is how the chapter ends in, verse 20, in chapter 24. Would you consider with me the last few verses starting in verse 22? But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. 
After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and he heard, and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. In closing, I want us to notice that Paul shows us an example of prizing the proclamation of the gospel above our personal freedom. We prize the proclamation of the gospel above our personal freedom. After Paul concludes his defense, Felix says that he wants to hear from Lysias, the tribune, who's, who's in Jerusalem, and he wants to hear from him in person. You see, from Rome's perspective, Lysias is the only reliable, independent eyewitness to the events that had led up to this point. Of course, at this, this point, Felix has no reason to really hold Paul any longer, but at least he doesn't condemn Paul. And we never actually find out if Lysias is ever actually summoned to come, or if he ever makes the trip. We, we learn nothing about whether that happens. In the meantime, while we're supposedly waiting for Lysias, Paul is, is kept in custody with a degree of freedom. We learn in chapter 26 that, that he is kept in chains, but his friends and followers, or excuse me, his friends and fellow believers could visit and minister to his needs. And after some days, likely enough days for Paul to have had visitors, Felix summons Paul in verse 24. We aren't initially told why Felix summons him, but his Jewish wife, Drusilla, the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I, who had killed, the, killed James back in, back in Acts 12, he may have been curious, she may have been curious about Paul and sort of rubbed off on Felix. Eventually, we see in verse 26, part of Felix's motivation. <laughs> he hopes that Paul will pay him off so that he can let Paul go free. He assumes that the Christians visiting Paul are going to bring him money so that Paul can pay him a bribe, but Paul will not pervert his actual innocence by paying a bribe. Check out Exodus 23, 8, Deuteronomy 10, 17, Deuteronomy 16, 19, Deuteronomy 27, 25, or Proverbs 29, 4. A bribe corrupts. A bribe changes the narrative, and Paul is not needing to bribe his way into innocence. He is actually innocent. And so even though he could have acquired the money to pay the bribe and get out and share the gospel more freely, he will not have it said that his innocence was tainted by a bribe compromising his testimony down the line. Paul stays right where he is. He has the promise of King Jesus that he'll get to Rome and that's all he needs so he won't buy off the governor. The governor needs to know Jesus, by the way. And Jesus has placed Paul there for that assignment in the meantime. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 21? He told his disciples this, They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought, listen, before kings and governors. For my name's 
sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Beloved, I don't know what the future holds for Christians in these United States of America, but if the trend line and the trajectory continues, there very well may be days where you are brought before governors, where you are brought before mayors, where you are brought before councilmen, and this will be your opportunity to bear witness. I serve the risen king. So Paul doesn't bring bribe money or beg for his freedom. Instead, in verses 24 and 25, what does he do? He announces the gospel. He speaks the faith that is in the Messiah, Jesus. He announces the Messiah promised in the Old Testament to come through the Jewish people that he had come. And he announced that Jesus is this Messiah. And it is through faith in this one king that God saves his people. And in verse 25, we see Paul also explains why we need salvation through Messiah Jesus. Why do we need salvation? Because God's holiness demands that we be righteous to abide in His loving presence. Some of you don't know the joy of the Lord because you don't have Jesus who has cleansed you from the inside out, giving you the righteousness of God that you need. It is only through the sinless perfection of the Savior that you can have the righteousness of God. It is only through faith in Christ that you can have it. And then Paul moves from righteousness to self-control. Righteousness is not just this abstract idea, but it should lead you to have self-control. In other words, you should have a, a mastery over fleshly desires and passions that comes only from a heart that's been supernaturally changed by the Holy Spirit. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is what? Self-control, Galatians 5, 23. When we really get the Spirit, we get access to self-control. Some of you this morning, we saying, I speak Jesus and there's depression and there's addiction and there's anxiety and these are all these things. The fundamental reality is you still don't have self-control. You don't have mastery over the thing that keeps bringing you back into a life that is far from God. And it's only through faith in Christ that you gain self-control that reflects the righteous standard of a holy God. And finally, Paul speaks of judgment. He says, there is a standard, and it is God's righteousness. You are not living up to the standard. Look at your own ability to master your own passions. You can't do it. And then he says, there's coming a day of judgment. There's an urgency to Paul's message. By the way, church, if there's no judgment... We should not waste our time sharing the gospel. If there's no judgment, we should pay the bribe and go home and have a good time. But judgment awaits us all. Left to ourselves, we lack righteousness. We know we lack self-control. And therefore, we face God's just judgment. Hebrews 9.26 says, It is appointed for a man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. You're going to live, and you're going to die, and you're going to face the judgment of God. That is true for every man, woman, and child, human being on the planet. And here's the good news. For those who turn from sin and trust in King Jesus, it's as though we've already died the death we should have died because He died it for us on the cross. Which means when He comes in judgment, He will say that the death we deserve to die has been paid and we will not participate in the second death in the lake of fire, but we will be given life everlasting through faith in our King. And when Felix hears the gospel, 
he is alarmed or literally terrified because he knew in his soul what some of you know right now, that he did not possess God's righteousness. He knew that he was an utter pool of a lack of self-control. And he knew he would surely be overtaken by the judgment. And if Governor Felix had run to Jesus, his ending would have been far different. But our responsibility, brothers and sisters, is not to control how someone responds to the gospel. It is merely to present it. Paul could have bribed and sweet-talked his way out of prison, and instead he stands before governors and he preaches the gospel. And he says, Governor, I know I'm under your judgment right now, but the King of Kings is coming in judgment, and you better bow the knee before it is too late. Paul is faithful. It leaves him in prison, and Felix, two years later, moves on and another governor replaces him and Felix plays the political game rather than the right and righteous path of releasing Paul. He, he curries favor with the Jews and Paul is left there. But he still has the promises of his king who will surely get him to Rome and who will raise him to life on the last day. I want to urge us, beloved, to be a clear and faithful and selfless witness regardless of the results. Don't be a Felix. Don't deny. Don't delay. Turn from sin in this moment of gracious conviction, knowing that tomorrow is not guaranteed. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, We thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you that the resurrection of Jesus means that Jesus is right and that he's returning and that having a right relationship with God is possible through him and him alone. And we pray, God, no matter what happens in our culture and in our country, that you would cause us to be like Paul, that we would not take the easy way out, that we would not bribe or sweet talk our freedom, but that we would remain steadfast in representing the risen King of kings and Lord of lords. And God, this morning, as we have an opportunity to respond to what you've done and what you've said to us, God, I pray you would give your church liberty uh, to, to be courageous, to be renewed in their strength and their confidence in Christ and the gospel, and that those, God, who don't know you, that maybe today would be the day that your spirit convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment and brings them to a glorious and saving faith in Christ. Have your will and your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.